One of the things as we look in the Bible, as you read the Bible, one of the things you have to ask yourself is, is, is the script or is the text you're reading, is it descriptive or prescriptive? All right, these two different terms, they're different types of text, all right? A descriptive text is telling you what happened. It's telling you the story, all right? Saying, hey, this is what happened. They went from here to there, and they did this, and they did that. It's not necessarily a bunch of commands you're supposed to follow. You're not supposed to do everything they did. It's just telling you what happened. And then there's other texts in the Bible that are prescriptive. These are commands. These are things you're supposed to do, right? So like we look at the Ten Commandments. You come to the Ten Commandments. That's a prescriptive text. You're supposed to do these things. Honor the Lord your God. Uh, have no other false idols. Like those are things you're supposed to do. We come to maybe a passage like Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. This is a prescriptive text. We're supposed to go and do this. That's prescriptive. But sometimes we read scripture and we're like, well, what is this? So for example, on my Bible reading plan uh, here last week or so, I read Judges chapter four. Anybody know what happens in Judges chapter four? I'll tell you what happens in Judges chapter four. There's an evil guy named Sisera and he's on the run and he's like, oh, I gotta go hide. And so he goes into this guy's tent and he's like, I'm gonna hide out in your tent. And this guy's wife is like, sure, you can hide in my tent. And she gives him some warm milk and lays him down to take a nap and puts a little blanket over him. And he falls asleep and she takes a tent peg and drives it through his forehead. Now, like, is that descriptive or prescriptive? As we look at our enemies, are we going to try and, and put them down for a nap and, and get some tent paint? Like, like, is that what we're supposed to do? Or in uh, Numbers 22, uh, Numbers 22, again, one of these great passages where, where God speaks through a donkey. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Are we supposed to be farmers and seek the, the counsel of God from our donkeys and try and get our donkeys to tell us what to do? No, see, it's important for us to grasp the difference between descriptive and prescriptive because three quarters of our Bible is descriptive. It's telling us the things that happened. Now, in descriptive, that doesn't mean we don't learn some things about God. There's things we learn from that. But we have to understand that, that a descriptive text is not saying do everything they did. It's telling us what happened and there's principles that we learn from that. Now, obviously, we're studying the book of Acts. And I don't know about you, but I have just loved this series. I love this book. I love seeing just the power of God. It's just like again and again, I'm like, holy moly, look what God does. Isn't it amazing? I mean, you've got, you've got disciples speaking in tongues. You've got people being healed of physical ailments. We see in the book of Acts thousands upon thousands of people being added to the church day after day. Miracles are happening. There, there's joy. There's confidence, even in the midst of suffering. Like, this is remarkable. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but I'm reading the book of Acts. And I'm like, I want some of that in my life. I want the power of God to work in, 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 in crazy. I want that in my life, in our church, in our, in our city, right? I mean, I think about I think about some struggles I've got in my own life. Man, I'd love to see the power of God. I'd love to see him do a miracle. We've got a friend that recently called and said, hey, my cancer has spread. They're saying it's stage four cancer now. Now I'll tell you what, I would love to see a miracle. I would love to see 
healing. I think about my family. I think about, like, I would love to see my family strengthened. I'd love to see our church strong. I'd love to see our city transformed. Like, don't you want those things? And as I'm reading the book of Acts, as I'm seeing what happened in the early church, man, I wonder how can we get God's presence and God's power like that early church? And that's where I ask that question. Is the book of Acts prescriptive? Is the book of Acts telling us if we just do everything those disciples did, then God will show up and do these amazing things just like he did in the early church? No. I think the book of Acts is descriptive. It is telling us what has happened. But there's still an ability for us to learn some things from the book of Acts as to how we see the power and the presence of God poured out on us. Obviously, we're in the book of Acts. I've talked about this. We're saying that the book of Acts is how the early church became not just an institution where you come and you worship and you go home, but it became a movement that transformed everything around it. It's pretty remarkable. Again, you just see the power of God and again and again and again. And we're looking at this book saying, God, how could we become a movement here at Restoration Church? How could God do some of those same things right here in Yakima? And again, as we consider our lives, we consider our families, we consider our church, man, like what can we do to see the power of God poured out on us just like that? And again, this is where I say the book of Acts is descriptive. It is telling us how the early church started and expanded and became a movement. But that does not mean there's not hope for us in our circumstances. Because descriptive texts are not just that God doesn't do the same thing, but descriptive texts are there so we can learn and see some patterns and some lessons that teach us and reveal to us the times that God shows his presence and his power. And so as we look at chapter 5 that Jaylene read for us this morning, we're going to see that the presence and the power of God is available for our lives and our church when we focus on the common theme in chapter 5. That the presence and the power of God is given as his church was obedient to him. As he obeyed the call that God put in their life, that is when we see this, this presence and power again and again. And we're, we're going to see it in the text. We're going to jump. A little bit of recap. Remember where we were last week? We had Ananias and Sapphira. They were in the new church, and they saw Barnabas. Barnabas had sold some land and donated all the proceeds to the church, and everybody was like, wow, Barnabas is amazing. We want to be like Barnabas. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they come in, and they're like, we want to do the same thing. We want people to say, you're so spiritual. You're so holy. We want to be like you. So they sold a piece of property, but they kept a portion of it for themselves. But they still took credit of giving the whole thing, exposed some hypocrisy showed that they were more concerned with the applause of men rather than, the, uh, rather than the approval of God. And so what did God do? God had some immediate severe punishment, caused both Ananias and Sapphira to drop dead in a moment, kind of setting a precedent that we need to hear today. This is for Christians. The precedent is a hypocrisy, which is Satan's greatest threat on the mission of God. Hypocrisy cannot be tolerated in the church. It is the most destructive thing that we can allow in the church is when we pretend to be greater than we really are. But you know what's amazing? And I love this because we, 
read the story about Ananias and Sapphira, and you think that would scare the daylights out of people, right? But chapter 5, verse 14, immediately after that story, says, more than ever, believers were added to the church, multitudes of men and women. More than ever, multitudes. Now, we read in Acts chapter 2 that 2,000 people were added to the church. And then Acts chapter 4, there was 5,000 people added to the church. And, and now he's like, I can't even keep track of all the numbers. It's just multitudes of people. There are thousands upon thousands of people coming to the church even after this scary incident with Ananias and Sapphira. It is pretty remarkable to see the presence and the power of God in the church. But our text today starts out in verse 17. And it says, but. Again, in the book of Acts, you're going to see a lot of buts. There's a lot of buts. But the high priest rose up and all that were with him, that is the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And listen to this. They arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. Remember the first time in Acts chapter 4, it was just Peter and John that were arrested. Now they're like, hey, we got to do something bigger. So they arrest all 12 of the apostles and put them in prison. Now, let me ask this. How many of you, uh, how many of you sometimes feel like you're a little bit of a control freak? And you, know, you don't have to raise your hand. I know control freaks don't want to do that. But, but those of us that are a little bit control freaks, what happens when you start losing control? What do you do? You squeeze tighter. You hold on tighter. And that's what happened. That's what's happening with these religious leaders. They tried to stop the mission of God from moving. They tried to stop these apostles. They tried to stop the church. But what is God doing? God has just continued to pour out his spirit and his, his blessing. And the church keeps growing and growing and they're losing control. All of a sudden, all these people, instead of listening to their religious authorities, now they're listening to, to, to the apostles and Peter and John and, and they're going to this church thing. And they feel like they're losing control. And so they arrest all these apostles and not because they were concerned for the doctrine, not because they were concerned for the people. No, it said specifically, they were just jealous. Man, they have more people following them on social media than I do. Why, do, why are more people interacting with their posts instead of my? And it was simply jealousy. And they arrest all 12, and they put them in prison. And here's where it's awesome. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord came and opened the prison doors and brought them out and told them, verse 20, go and stand at the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, how many of you ever saw that show, Prison Break? I don't know, that's an old show, Prison Break. It was, we watched it years ago. I love this. I love this prison escape because this isn't the disciples with a spoon trying to dig out like a brick and trying to get out through the, I don't know, however you do that in prison. I've never, not my story. This was an angel of the Lord miraculously opening the door and leading them out in a miracle. That's awesome. Now, again, one of the things often as I'm, teaching scripture with you, one of the things I want to teach us to do is ask questions. It's good for us to say, man, why is this here? And I think the question I asked when I was reading this text is, is why is there this angelic intervention right here? I mean, why now? Why does this angel come and release them out of prison? Here's what I came up with. Is it not to encourage the apostles in the early church? Is it simply for them to say, listen, God is able to deliver you from whatever situation you find yourself in. Like, how good is it for us to know that? That no matter what we're facing, the disease, the job loss, the financial problems, the relationship, 
How good is it for us to know that God is able to deliver us from any situation we find ourselves in? We need to recognize, like, when we're being faithful to God, we need to, there's a spiritual battle happening around us. Satan will do anything in his power. You know, the Satan will do anything in his power to discourage you, to stop the gospel from working in you and through you. Causing the leaders to throw the apostles into prison. And then God, show, God sends the angel to show his love and his care and his concern for the apostles to demonstrate that God provides their needs when they seek the kingdom of God first and foremost. In fact, that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. God said, listen, Jesus said, if you, if you seek me first, all those other things, power and presence and joy and, and peace and all those other things, if you seek me first, all those other things will be added to you. And this angelic intervention is a real practical example of that's what God does. You seek me first and watch as I take care of you. The angel lets him out. The next morning, verse 21, it says, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Again, what got them arrested in the first place? Was it not because they were preaching and teaching about Jesus? And they're released. And what are they doing? They're going right back to preaching and teaching about Jesus. They didn't wait for things to die down a little bit. They didn't wait to see what's going to happen. No, they just went right back at it. And I think the problem with many of us, with many of us, is we're willing to do whatever God asks us to do on our own time frame, right? I mean, God asks us to do something, and we're like, I will do that when I'm real good and ready, right? Listen. God doesn't ask us for good intentions. God asks us for immediate action. God asks us for obedience because if we're being honest, how many times have we had good intentions to do something for the Lord? But then we get busy. Other things get in the way. And pretty soon, that thing that God asks us to do, we're like, oh yeah, I forgot all about it. No, God's not looking for good intentions. He's looking for immediate action. The angel releases them and says, go and preach to them all about life. And what do they do immediately the next day? They go back to the temple and they're doing the same thing. And I love this because it said, the angel said, I want you to preach all the words of life. You know what life is? Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come to give you life and life abundant. You know what that means? I mean, yes, yeah, yes, God gives us eternal life and, and we're looking forward to eternal life, Right? We're looking forward to the time when all things are made right. There is no more cancer. There's no more pain, no more sorrow. Like we long for that day. But Jesus said, I came to give you abundant life now. That life that we want, fulfilled, peace, joy, is found in him. Think about that. How many of us are longing for a better life? Jesus says, Life is in me. You want that life? You want fulfillment? It's in me. Now, this is where the story is really, a, it's really kind of a funny little story. Because the next day, the high priests and the religious leaders, they gather together in the courtroom, and they're like, hey, we're ready to do with these apostles. 
and they send the guard to the prison and the guards get there and like, "Uh uh-oh, the doors are locked, but there's no apostles in the prison anymore. They're gone. Could you imagine having to be that guy to go back to the religious authorities and be like, hey, uh, remember those guys are supposed to be in court right now? I don't know where they are. They're gone. That guy would have been in big trouble, right? And so they're all wondering, what is going on here? Like, like what has happened? We don't see a spoon with, with, with brick and mortar anywhere. Like, what happened? Well, then another guy walks into the court, and he's like, hey, hey, uh, you know those 12 guys are supposed to be in court right now? Yeah, we, we saw them in the temple. They're still preaching about Jesus. So the religious leaders are like, what do we do now? They send some guards to go and arrest those apostles, but... It says they can't do it by force because if they do it by force, they know that the people will be really mad at them, probably recording what happens on their cell phone and posting it on social media and saying, look what an outrage, they're arresting the apostles. So they bring them to high court, bring them to court. The high priest, verse 28, questions them. The high priest says, I strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Notice what the high priest says. He says, this name. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. He can't even say the name of Jesus. He can't even say it. There's so much hatred. Do you know that there is power in the name of Jesus? I mean, this is Acts chapter 2. Peter already preached this and said, repent and be baptized in what? In the name of Jesus. For forgiveness of sin, there is power in the name. And it's ironic that these religious leaders claim to be speaking for God, yet they can't even say the name of Jesus. The Son of God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And what else did that high priest say? He said, he said, we charge you not to teach this name. And listen to that. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You know how awesome that is? They filled the city with the teaching of Jesus and the resurrection. Do you think perhaps maybe that's why that early church experienced the power and the presence of God? Because they filled the city with the teaching of Jesus. What do you think would happen if we filled Yakima with the teachings of Jesus? What would happen to the Yakima Valley? What would happen to the Pacific Northwest if we actually filled the Northwest with the teachings of Jesus? I know. We start thinking, we're like, well, let's do it. Let's go get some radio ads. Let's go get some money and put it on social media. And we'll start spreading. We'll get some TV ads. Could you picture me as a TV preacher? I could, I'd have to get some more hair, comb it over. I don't know, I'd have to do some other funny stuff too. But uh, could you picture that? It makes me laugh when I think about it. I don't know if I could do that. It makes me think of uh, Jesus. I don't know. Well, that's sidetrack. <laughs> Do you know the the lesson from the early church, though? They filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus, not through radio and social media and TV. You know what lesson that teaches us? They filled Jerusalem simply 
It was less to do with what they did on a Sunday morning. It was more grassroots. They filled Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus because individuals, people, took the message of Jesus into their homes, into their schools, into their workplaces, into their families, into their friends, into their classrooms. They took that message with them and said, let me tell you about this Jesus. And again, you see the power and the presence of God being poured out because they took that message with them everywhere they went. And this is where I come back to imagine what God could do if we took that message that serious. Imagine what God would do in our families, in our city, in our community if we took that message with us everywhere we went. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Let me tell you what Jesus can do in your life. High priest is questioning them. Verse 29, it says, Peter and the apostles responded and said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, he raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sin. Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. And listen to this. Whom he gives to those who obey him. Who does God give the Holy Spirit to? What's it say? To those who obey him. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, well, what about a couple weeks ago? We talked about the Holy Spirit. We said that, that when you become a Christian, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You get all of the Spirit inside of you. He takes up residence. That is true. That is true, that when you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and becomes a real thing. But here, Scripture actually says that he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Let me just say, could there be a correlation between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Could there be a correlation to the presence and the power of God and our obedience? That as we talk about wanting to be filled with the Spirit, that we have the Spirit, but we want these multiple feelings, maybe there's a correlation to us obeying God and Him filling us with the Spirit and walking in Him. A correlation between our obedience and God pouring out his spirit and his power amongst us. What did Peter and the apostles do? I mean, look, look at this. Think about what we read in this text. As they are being witnesses in Jerusalem, what does God do? He blesses their message. And we see thousands of people being added to the church. As Peter and the apostles, as they're obedient to, their, to be bold in their faith, even though they're, they're challenged and said, don't preach, they're obedient to it. They're bold. What does God do? He shows his power through miracles and healings and prison escapes. As they say, no, we're going to obey God rather than men. What does God do? He gives them boldness and joy throughout their lives. As they fill Jerusalem with the teachings of Jesus and the resurrection, as they stay faithful to his message despite the threats. What does God do? He gives them his power and his presence. I believe there's a correlation here between their obedience and the power and 
the presence of God. And notice, here they are in court before the authorities who have the authority to kill them. And they're going to talk about that. Hey, we want to kill you guys. We, we, we want to be done with this. And notice what the apostles are doing. They're not defending themselves. They're not saying we've done nothing wrong. They're not saying, hey, what's happening is illegal. You, we have, you have no reason to arrest us. What are they doing? They are proclaiming Jesus. What did the, what did the text say? They're preaching the gospel, saying Jesus died and rose from the grave to give repentance and forgiveness of sin. Rather than defending themselves and trying to save their lives, they're still pointing to Jesus. They're still saying Jesus is the only way. That in him we have eternal life and abundant life. There's this crazy obedience despite difficult circumstances. Maybe that's a message for us today. Difficult circumstances, overwhelmed, but still choosing to remain obedient to what God has asked of us. Well, the authorities are enraged. They're like, what the heck are you doing? We brought you into court and you're still teaching about this Jesus and they're ready to kill him. They're ready. We're going to kill all of you right now. But verse 34 says, there was a teacher of the law, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. You may call him Gamaliel. You can call him any name you want. I'm going to say Gamaliel and I'm going to say with authority so it sounds like I know what I'm talking about, okay? This guy, Gamaliel, he says, hold up, everybody, hold up. And he sends the apostles out. He's kind of like, that's kind of like when dad's like, hey, kids, get out of the room. Mom and dad need to talk for a minute without you here. That's what Gamaliel sends them out and says, hey, guys, hold up a second. Mom and dad need to talk. He sees the rage of all these authorities. And his wisdom is, be careful what you do here. And he tells them two stories. He says, remember what happened with Thutis and Judas. Thutis and, it sounds like Beverly Hillbillies, right? Thutis and Judas. Remember what happened with the Beverly Hillbillies, right? These were false messiahs who tried to start a movement. They gathered a crowd, but because it wasn't of God, it fizzled out and died. And so this Gamaliel, this teacher of the law, this guy who I don't think knows Jesus as a savior, he says, listen, when we consider the apostles and, and this, this Jesus movement and this early church, he says this, verse 38, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan, if this movement is of man, it will fail. If it's not of God, it's kind of fizzle out. But verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. That right there is a scary statement to think that we could actually be found opposing God. You know what that means? Is if God is trying to do something in our family's life, God's trying to do something in your spouse, God's trying to do something in your child, God's trying to do something maybe even in your own life. And if you're like, I don't know if I like that idea, I'm going to try and change course. You could actually be found opposing God. And I don't know about you, but that's not a fight I want to be in. I don't want to be the one trying to fight against what God has. And I tell you, the where it scares me the most is I think about my kids. I've got plans for my kids. I've got futures for them. But you know what? If God's trying to do something in them and I try and change that course, I could be found opposing God. 
verse 39, it says, they took his advice. They called in the apostles and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And listen to this, verse 41. When they left the council of the presence, they rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. How does that happen? How do guys get beaten? And I'm not talking about beaten like they got some spankings. Now, these, these were, this was a flogging. This was whips that was tearing flesh off their body. How do these guys get beaten like that and get done and still have the ability to say, hey, we're going to rejoice. We rejoice. We have joy that we were considered worthy to suffer this kind of dishonor. I don't know about you, but that, that's not normal, Right? How do you have joy? Be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Is that not because of the Holy Spirit? Is that not because the presence and the power of God is on their lives that they can say, regardless of what just happened, we still are faithful. We still have his presence. We have that promise that he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. That is a gift from God because of his presence with them. And this is where I say, here's our summary. Here, here's what this text is teaching us. Because I'm, I'm saying for me, I want that power and presence of God in my life. I want that power and presence of God in our church, in our city. But the power and presence of God is a result of our obedience to him. that his outpouring is a result of our obedience. And I know some of you are saying, well, no, the gospel says I'm saved because of grace. And that is 100% true. Amen and amen. You are saved because of what Jesus has done for you, not because of what you've done for him. That is 100% true. But as I read this text, that says the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey him. We might be saved, but how many of us are missing out on the power and the presence of God in our lives, missing out on all that God wants to do in us because we're not willing to obey him on what he's asking us to do. But let me ask you this morning. What is it God is asking you to do? What is it God's been speaking to you about? What is, what is it that God's been saying, hey, I need you to do this. I need you to step into this. I need you to deal with this. I need you to follow me here. I know there are some in this room, God's been calling you to give your life to him, to surrender to him. At this point, you've been hesitant. You've been afraid. You've been, well, I don't have all the answers. Listen, God has been calling you to surrender and say, God, I'm all in. Listen, are you going to continue to miss out on the power and the presence of God because you're unwilling to obey what he's asking you to do today? I know there are some in here that God's been calling you to deal with some sin. There's been some sin that you've held on to. Maybe you try and hide. Maybe you try and justify, say, well, it's just a little thing. It's just, I'll get a, I'll get a handle of this eventually. Maybe you even lie to yourself and say, I can control it. It's not that bad. Now, God has been calling you to, to, to deal with this sin. 
The question is, are you going to miss the power and the presence of God because you're unwilling to obey what God is calling you to do? The reality is, some of us in here, we've got some relationships that are struggling, and God is calling you to to, to do some change, to, to fix those things. He's calling you to handle your conflict differently, to learn how to disagree, to learn how to communicate. He's calling you to to love your spouse better, to sacrifice for your spouse. He's calling you to be more intentional with your kids. Listen, are we really going to miss out on what God has for us because we're unwilling to listen to what he's calling us to? It's for our good. It's for our benefit that he's calling us to these things. Are you willing to obey and trust that God can do something in that? Man, some of you, man, it's related to church. God is calling you to engage with church. Some of you, God's calling you to serve in kids' ministry. I know some of you are like, that is not of God. That is of Satan. Kids' ministry is not of God. Praise God for those that serve back there. Woo! No, but, man, church, church is a discipline thing. It's something we have to be intentional about. And there's a blessing from church, but you know the blessing from church comes through obedience, comes through our faithfulness, comes through going through the hard times, the hard conversations, and getting past the awkward to where things go deep and things become so beautiful. Are you willing to obey God in that? All of us, we're called to be witnesses. Jesus said this. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And guess where we are? This is the ends of the earth right here. You are called to be a witness, to to live out your faith in the open for all to see. Let's just be honest. How many of us are, are fearful to live our faith out? How many of us are afraid to be open about our faith because we fear rejection, ridicule, Would we rather please men or would we rather please God? Are you willing to obey what God has for you? Let me rephrase, reframe this a little bit. Do you realize that God didn't save you for his preferences? He saved you for his purpose. God doesn't just have preferences for you. God has a purpose for you. And I think we mix those two things up. We, we, we prefer to think, well, God, you've got some uh, uh, preferences. And if I get to them, if I, if I want to obey God, then you'll, you'll, you'll do that. No, God doesn't save you for his preferences. He saves you for purposes. He has a purpose for you. And rather than us obeying immediately, what do we do? We, we, we make excuses. We make excuses to why, God, I can't obey you right now. Sure, God, I will follow you completely when I'm a little bit older. I will follow you completely, God, when I have all my questions answered. God, I will be all in after I live a little bit more life and have a little bit more fun. Sure, God, I'll get involved in church when the kids are older, when life slows down, when I have more time. Again, it's not just about good intentions. It's about action. Sure, God, sure, God, 
Once I save enough money, and once I, once I pay off my debt, and once I buy that new car, and, and once I have enough excess, then, God, then I'll give to you. Then I'll give to the mission of God. But until then, God, I just don't have it. And we wonder, why aren't we experiencing the power and the presence of God in our life? Because what God asks us to do is not a preference. It's a purpose. God set us free, not for a preference that we can choose to follow, but for a purpose that God has for us. In fact, I think about 10 plus years ago, God spoke to me and Samantha through a friend of ours. He said, hey, Kevin, Sam, we want you guys to plant a church. And I remember telling him, this isn't my preference. It wasn't part of my plan. I had a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. I'm like, you can't ask me to, I'm not a good enough leader. You can't ask me to do that. I don't want to plan a church because I don't want the stress of church planning to damage and stunt my kids and their faith and the relationship with the church. I remember he said, Kevin, would you do this? And I said, no. And I went home and I, and I told Sam what happened. And, and she said, Kevin, don't you see as God has prepared us for this? Do you think perhaps God is asking us to do that? In a real sense? I was found opposing God that day. That's not a spot I think any of us would want to be in. And I think back in two weeks as we celebrate 10 years as a church, and I think about those who started with us. <laughs> How many times have we heard those words of Gamaliel ring in our heads? If it is of men, it will fail. And the weight and the pressure we feel because of that. But Gamaliel said, if it is of God, it cannot be stopped. And I think about the past 10 years through obedience to what God has called us to do of seeing God's presence and power poured out again and again and again right here at Restoration Church. We've seen the power of God poured out through prison doors that have literally been opened. We're talking about, about, about captives being set free, people stuck in sin and addiction and, and, and issues and God's power setting them free again and again and again. We're talking about seeing God bring, bring the right person at the right time when we had no one else to do it and no clue what we were going to do. We're talking about God showing up and providing the resource when we weren't sure how we were going to pay the bills the next month and God just provides. We're talking about seeing miracles. Like two weeks ago when we saw Enrique Cervantes and, and Deb Funkhauser baptized. Like those are miracles. Those are lives that have been transformed because of Jesus. That is a power in the presence of God in our church. And I think about those 10 years, I think about the hard times. There's been some hard times along that ride. You really like to gloss over the Christian life and say, once you follow Jesus, everything's great. No, it's not always great. There's some hard things you go through. As I think about those 10 years, I think about how difficult it's been to see people 
walk down sin, damage their life and their kids, damage things around them. Hard to see broken relationships. Hard to see people give in to their addiction again and again and again. Hard to see people suffer through death and grief. But you know, every one of those hard things along the way, the presence of Jesus was with it, with us in the middle of all of it. In every one of those things, we were never alone. That we have that promise that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And we can stand and say, we rejoice. We rejoice in the midst of all of that because we know God is working. We know that God is present. And we know that God will turn things around for our good and for his glory. Yeah, see, the power and the presence of God is a gift. It's a gift when we are obedient to what God has called us to. He didn't just save us for preferences that we can choose to obey or not. No, God saved you for a purpose. But I want to ask you this morning, are you willing to obey what God's called you, what God's calling you to? What is it this morning? What is God speaking to you about? What has been God saying, hey, we need to deal with this? What has God been saying, I need you to jump in here, I need you to do this or do that? What has God been speaking to you? And the question is, will you obey it? So you can experience the power, the presence of Him in your life. 